thank you. I heard you last year as well when you were at the, you know, um, Melrose Place. And um, it was really deeply communicative, what you've been talking about, just thematically, just beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask us about the origins of all this. When you look back at this now, because it's such an extreme form in a way to live, even though the interior is something that I don't think anyone can avoid who's a thoughtful person. You know, just all these things we've had to confront, they're going to get us, no matter whether we want to be a householder or a nun. This stuff cannot be avoided. But what I want to know is now when you look back, as you said you're like a Santa Monica girl, were you running from anything when you first decided to be a nun? Like, Like, were you running from something? I wanted to be a nun from the time I was 17. So when I went to UC Santa Cruz, I walked into a class, and it was like, I don't know, somebody throwing a match on a bonfire that's been doused with kerosene. It was just, I was ignited, you know? And at 17, you know, most 17-year-old people have a long list of stuff that isn't sorted out yet, you know? all kinds of issues around family and dynamics and relationships and sexuality and, and making a livelihood and, you know, the complexity of the world and the despair about the world and all of it. And I remember vividly that during the ten years that it took from that period of time until I actually got to the monastery, there were innumerable times when stuff would be arising and I'd say, oh, to hell with it, I'm just going to go be a nun. Okay, But simultaneous with all of that, there was a small voice that said, you're never going to be able to make this work if you're running from anything. So it was my unconscious agenda to let all of that stuff come to a settled enough place that it in fact was not at all about running. It was about really going forth. Now, having said that, one of the things that has been profoundly apparent to me is the unconscious mechanisms that operate, that take enormous ground to excavate and see. I thought I was clear. I was not clear. There were all kinds of things that were motivating me to become a nun that I had no awareness of. When I became aware of them, then I needed to recognize the choices that that put me in, in terms of whether I wanted to continue to stay living as a nun or not. Okay? Our motivations is also something that both needs to be purified as well as needs to be reflected on. There's no way that one can just arrive at a decision and it's done. It's an evolving process itself. Yes. Um, you, you were touching upon feeling sensations in your body and using that as a guide about making decisions and it sounds like getting to the root of um, what your motivations are has something to do with that. I was hoping you might elaborate a little bit on that if that's actually true 
Well, I mean, I can share more about my own personal process. I just knew that, you know, I was one of these people who was hell-bent and determined for enlightenment. Like, from the time I was 17, it was the only thing that I thought was important, you know? You know, nirvana or bust. (laughs) And, you know, I had a strong meditation practice, and I went on 10-day retreats every year, and I sat every day, and that was going on for a long time. And then at some point in the meditation, there was a recognition that the more I tried, the the further away I was getting, okay? So there was a recognition that I didn't need to try more. There wasn't a lack of effort, and there wasn't a lack of conviction. There wasn't a lack of persistence. There might have something to do with a lack of right view, okay? And it was at that point where I... A number of things happened. I took the Bodhisattva vows, and I went to Australia, and I lived in a a, a remote forest hermitage in the middle of a national park. And I had never been to Australia. So I didn't know the land, and I didn't know the people. And so, you know, again, it took a little while for me to settle in. But the land was welcoming to me in a way that I had never experienced before. So I grew up in L.A., you know, I am not a country kid. I'm a city girl. And yet, I have an affinity with the land. That was part of the reason why I was really happy to escape, you know? Because you don't, there's not a lot of wide open space here, you know? But the land really helped hold me in a way that I had never experienced before. And that holding helped me see things that I didn't know about myself. So I had experienced myself as a bright, confident, capable person. And I had no idea the layers of fear, the layers of anger, and the self-hatred that was stratified. But the land held me and made me feel welcome. In the same way that my punks make me feel welcome. (laughs) And when you feel welcome like that, you can relax in a different way. And when you relax in that way, your attention can navigate layers that you cannot navigate when you don't feel that safety. When you feel that safety, then you're able to see things about what's been happening for you that were not visible before. When I saw that, I could see how all of these things had been driving me and I was oblivious to them. Yes, please. Um, I went to San Francisco at 17 too. became quite the heavy Um I was going to ask if you could say anything about the connection between um, attachment and drug and alcohol addiction. There's a huge connection between addiction and trauma. Huge connection. And it's a sadness for me that the recovery programs don't have trauma as like the other side of the hand. And I, I have been pestering everybody I know to see if the people in recovery will do that. 
they will make a recovery program that understands trauma and begins to start having a, a peer-led response to that. Okay? One of the things about addiction, trauma, and attachment is, is that, you know, when we hear the word attachment in the Buddhist context, attachment is like a bad thing. It's the thing you want to give up, right? But in a psychological framework, it's actually an essential thing, you know? So if you take a young monkey, a baby monkey, and you put it in a cage, and you give it food, and you give it water, and you give it medicine, and you keep it warm enough, that monkey will die. Because that monkey is a social creature. And that monkey needs to be held, needs to be close to its other monkeys, to the mother. It needs to feel warmth. It needs to have a positive attachment in order to survive. And for 10 million reasons, we have a society of people who have attachment disorders where the primary caretaking was not sufficient to trust and relax and feel totally safe. And oftentimes what happens in response to that is that addiction of all of the 10,000 myriad expressions of it is the compensation for the lack of primary caregiving that one received as a young child. As I have navigated my own version of this, I haven't had substance abuse, but I have had to navigate many, many layers of this. I have navigated it with both ends of the stick, meaning doing everything I can to bring a sense of warmth and care and tenderness and respect and friendship and self-nourishment and appropriate response to what's arising and moving into that place where when one rests there one realizes one is the love that one has been longing for and it sometimes feels like black hole work you know you can pour it in and 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 in. And you're going to have to keep pouring it in until it shifts and you really get it that you are, in fact, the love that you're longing for. When one sees that, then the need for the addictions falls away. Until one sees that and get in a recovery program. You were saying that you feel blueness encrusted with certain uh, things that perhaps are best left behind or need to change to sort of fit into where we are today. Could you give some specific examples? I didn't say Buddhism. I said the monastic tradition that I came from. Yeah. So. Could you elaborate on that? What would you like to see change? 
Well, in the tradition that I came from, you know, one of the reasons why I left was because the monks were asserting that basically they had seniority and authority, the nuns were junior, and that we didn't have the same standing that they had, and that our voice did not count as much as theirs did. And there were many examples of the way that was manifesting. But the bottom line was, is, is that they were saying, this is our thing. And if you don't accept that, then there's the door and you're welcome to leave. Now, it's changed in tone, so it's not as unkind as it was the last while I was there. But none of the policies have changed. So the effect is, is, is that the nuns are living under the thumb. Anybody who has experienced prejudice for any reason knows how absolutely destructive that is for a human being. It is psychologically dismantling. Something that is psychologically dismantling cannot be liberating. Now, I have heard stories of people who lived in concentration camps and had enlightenment experiences. I would not recommend concentration camps as a path for enlightenment. What do you feel gives the monks permission to behave that way? I think there's many things that were happening. And from my perspective... I think what happened is, is that there were, for the people who were instigating this, it was a combination of fear and their own unresolved issues that were manifesting. For the ones that were supportive or silent or condoning or allowing, I think it was that the aspiration to awaken had become less important than the longing to belong. It's clothed in political language. And the political language is, is, is that the bhikkhuni ordination or the nuns have died out 1,500 years ago and you can't reinstate the order. And a group of people have solidified around that and say, if you are in disagreement with that, you cannot be part of this family of monastics. And so the, the, what was at stake was is that if, if, if they were willing to support the nuns coming into a place of correct positioning, then they were going to lose their family affiliation. Yes. I saw you last year. I was really excited to hear you tonight. I was curious, um, from last year to this year, if you gained new supporters or met other nuns who are also in this path of what kind of smells like spiritual justice, and if there are things that you ask from the community um, besides the punks, what could we do to help you in there are, I mean, everybody has their own version of this and everybody's different versions. You know, it would be lovely to see how we can collaborate and support each other. Brilliant question. Really important question. I can't do this by myself. What I need is a team of peers 
who are interested in doing this with me. And by peers, I don't just mean monastics. I mean Dhamma teachers, post-monastics, and very experienced lay people who feel that this is needed. Okay? As a group of peers comes together who feel a resonance with this and are willing to stay in the fire as well as in the joy of birthing what is to be birthed, then I feel that a much bigger movement can emerge from that. Until that happens, then what's needed is more education and consolidation and people who feel an affinity to find a way of linking together. I'm a visionary. I'm not a strategist. I'm hopeless. I can do emails and I can send a Word document, but I don't know anything about websites. You know, <laughs> you know what's needed is to have the variety of talents of people coming together to begin to think about how do we have an online virtual community until we've got a place where we can all meet? How do we start developing this field so that people can plug into it in a way where they are nourished by it and wanting to contribute to it that is real for people. You know, there's a website, there's an Awakening Truth Facebook group, there's an email list, there's stuff that's happening. But it's like, right now, I feel like what I need personally to do is to be quiet, to write, and to allow some of this stuff to settle out more. When I'm quiet, I'm not teaching and traveling so much. The United States has not been geared up to supporting me just because I'm a nun, you know? So if I was possible for me to be able to do what I needed to do without feeling the pressure that the society has kind of created. I live in a consumer society, you know? And that's what I, that's what thing, how things are organized. There are lots of different ways that people can help. What I think is needed is, is that people feel a sense of, this makes sense, and I'd like to be part of it, and, you know, how do I sign up? So, you know, a simple sign-up is sign up to an email list. Another simple sign-up is be part of the Facebook group. And then figure out, you know, what makes sense. The Awakening Truth Board meetings are open. If you want to get more involved, let us know, and, you know, we'll figure it out. It's a big vision. It's not a small vision. And, you know, what my mistake was when I came out of Colorado, I mean, when I came out of England, was I just figured, well, I'll just, I'll just step one foot in front of the other and just see that it happens. But I realized it's too big for me to try and do that. I need to get a few more of the foundation stones in place before we can move to the next level. And until then, I need to be very careful with my own energy. Does that answer your question? Yeah? Yes, please. Um, you kind of talking about how to birth the movement. I'm just wondering how birthing movements might be different if you, like, the people you're involved with have the ability to tap into inner knowing those states consciousness. And birthing movement might like, occupy where a lot of people don't have that ability. Like, is there a difference in how these movements are built? Well, I think that there are different ways that different people can participate. And so certainly what I would like to see is, is that the, the leaders of this community have that ability to tap into that deeper knowing. 
And then everybody on the path who's part of it are interested in developing that, but there might be different levels of experience of people who are at that. So it's not like, you know, you have to have been a meditator for 30 years before you can sign the e-list, you know? But it would be great if people who have been meditators for 30 years are part of the holding the vision and allowing it to birth. So I think what's going to shape is, is that there will be different, like here and against the stream, there's a teacher's council. Not everybody's on the teacher's council. Why not? Because not everybody has the experience of a teacher to be able to input into that in a way that's useful. Yeah. But I'll tell you something else and then we should stop because it's after nine. You know, my head was like being pulled into 10,000 different directions about, you know, how do I do this and what is it going to look like and all the rest of that. And I was teaching a retreat with another nun and I was up in Cloud Mountain. So I don't even know what state that's in, but up. (laughs) And somebody was introducing themselves at the end of the retreat, okay? And they said, I'm from the against the stream tradition. (laughs) And I thought, well, damn it, if Noah can do it, so can I. So I will leave it at that. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.